Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. It's going to be a fun chat. And I'm a big fan of you, Nick, as you know, probably. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. The good thing about this conversation, it's very much less about Asia partners and Southeast Asia and rhinos and, you know, and more about you, Nick, as a person. So this should be an easier lift. You know? you're, you're too kind. You're too kind. I'm, I'm frankly getting still the hang of Clubhouse, but it was founded by one of my classmates. Oh, from school, and uh, he's just our hero as a class, uh, as a bunch of alums. Yeah. Uh, he's really pioneered something really, really compelling. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting time as they uh, figure out the monetization and uh, fighting off Twitter and Facebook in time to come. Very much so. Very much so. Jeremy, before we jump in, tell me a little more about your background. Yeah, happy to share. So, parents, you know, Malaysian, grew up in Singapore. Standard Army, UC Berkeley. I interned at a startup in Germany. That was a fun. And then a startup in China, in EdTech, Series A. And then went on to work at Bain across Southeast Asia and China. Lovely. Lovely. And then uh, bootstrap a social enterprise to profitability, a couple hundred clients, and then handed off to my successor, Harvard MBA. And then there I built a second company in early education from zero to pre-C to C to series A and then sold it. And I was chilling last year as the GM. And then after that, paying from Monk's Hill asked me to come in and come in to lead strategic projects with them as the head. So, Oh, I'm really happy to hear that. My wife and I are LPs in Monk's Hill. So we're <laughs> thrilled that Peng is bringing on great talent like you. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. They only have good things to say about you as well. So. Oh, that's awfully nice. Pe Peng is a, is a really good friend. He was just at my home for Sunday brunch, uh, gosh, three weekends ago. So, oh, That's always the best. Big fan. He's such a wonderful person. Yeah. He was trying to design a sound system for our house. As you know, Peng is a complete <laughs> audiophile. I mean, like an absolute audiophile. So he's like, you know, he's got like his fingers out. Sorry, I can't do this on the clubhouse. He's, you know, sort of like he's specking it. I was like, you should put a speaker over there. <laughs> like, Can we get a free quotation from you while we're at it? Like, you know, <laughs> I, I know, you know, he, nothing will probably make him happier than rewiring your whole house. <laughs> Seriously, like literally paying like, Look, I'm really nice. I'm really glad to serve on a board with you guys and something, but can I rewire your house? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think you need to pay, honestly. I think you probably might even do it for free just for the joy of it. No, I think it would be a, it would be a pro bono kind of thing. And I have another very good friend who I was on a board with in Singapore who I thought had the single best sound system in Singapore. Oh. I mean, th this is like, this guy has spent, no joke, over $200,000 on a sound system. I can't imagine. I mean, custom programming, electronic shielding. And I mentioned this to Peng and said, Peng, this friend of mine has the best sound system in Singapore. And he looks at me and says, hmm, not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
How polite as always. <laughs> It's like them's them's fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you just took off your white glove and just threw it to the floor. <laughs> seriously, seriously, he's like gauntlet accepted. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. You know, speaking about sound systems, I always remember like as a kid, and you know, my dad was also a big audiophile, right? And we had those uh, long days where he would ask me to run the wires because I'm small and nimble to go underneath the tables uh, and <laughs> go behind the TV, right? I'm sensing a child labor violation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're not in the states anymore. I was small and nimble. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> But there's no there's no OSHA requirement. We're not in the states anymore. There's no OSHA requirement here, son. It yeah, takes, exactly. some, takes some speaker wire. <laughs> <laughs> Run it behind. Run it behind. Put the white one in the white one, and I'll be like, which white one? Which white one do I put it in? Uh, well, this yeah. is like the end of every Mission Impossible movie where yeah. they're like, no, no, cut the green wire. Cut the green wire. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think we're starting to see a bunch of folks trickle in, and I'd love to make this as interactive as possible. Yeah. If folks want to jump in and. Yeah. Opine and and have views that we we should absolutely do that. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do that. We'll, we'll we'll get started and start with the interview uh, proper in that sense about your story. Yeah, and then we'll get ask people to come on. Well, no, happy to help in any way, Jeremy. Tell me about Brave Dynamics. What's the what does the brand mean to you? The Brave Dynamics brand. Ah, uh, Brave Dynamics. You know, I think one funny thing was I was chilling and relaxing, and I was thinking, okay, you know, what would be something I care about, right? That is one. And then the second thing I said was, and it has a .com <laughs> on the domain name, as of the divergent and convergent. And I think the part for me, what that resonated with me was, you know, I think bravery, right? I mean, there's there's all kinds of crazy things that you can do in technology, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like. Founders were brave enough to figure out hashtag product market fit, but brave enough to do something really stupid like building a startup, but also brave enough to get feedback and brave enough to hire and fire the first employee and things like that. And I think obviously it's also kind of like looking at it like inside out. Also like you know the bravery of everyone else, right? You know the angel investors. And other investors were making that early bet on very limited data, to say the least, and then also the people in the ecosystem, right? So I think that's the bravery part, and I think the dynamics was the part that resonated was the whole conversation between the different dynamics, I guess, between the various folks, right? That's what has always fascinated me, being a founder, but also that's why I also joined Ping, you know, to see the other side, right, and see the dynamics of it. And is that part of why the book is called Brave Becca? <laughs> yes, you spotted that. Yes, putting together that children's book, Brave Becca, was such a fun one, a fun journey. And we actually, the first name was we actually came up with was uh, well, we the, the key concept was we wanted to adapt Lean In and bring it in for as a children's book, right. so that we could explain the concept to to girls at a younger age, right? Because you know you don't need to be like I don't know your twenties or thirties or forties to read Lean In. It's about parents reading to their kids, and so we. Looking at Lean In, and then you know we saw that the key thing that we saw was like bravery. So I remember the first time we came together, and the name we got was like <laughs> Courageous Charlotte, and I was like, no, 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 this is too long. <laughs> we got to go shorter, and so we went for Brave Becca, which is a nice uh, synchronization. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what do you want to be, Jeremy, when you grow up? <laughs> 
Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a vaccine scientist and researcher and a poet on the side. Well, you were you were eerily prescient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else have you been predicting for the next 20 years? <laughs> uh, yeah, now I have to oh, scratch my head. We better write this down. I know, I, I know. You're literally like the, uh, who is the guy that had those predictions in Russia? Not Rasputin. There was like yeah. this guy that had these views of what the world would happen. But anyway, please, please continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, vaccine scientist and poet on the side. That was in uh, secondary school. Yeah, I think along the way, I went to undergrad. Uh, and funny story is like, long story short, as I pretty much like was in the bottom 1% of junior college. So there went my dreams of doing that stuff. I also realized that I wasn't in to be an introverted scientist in that sense. And then I went off to UC Berkeley and my friend was like, you got to check out this social impact consulting club. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't know what consulting is, but I like the social impact side of it. And uh, it was a very selective club, very tough interview. And the first interview they gave me was the case interview was, Jeremy, if you had 100,000 doses of vaccine, how would you distribute it across the city? And <laughs> And I aced it, right? Because I knew everything about vaccines and I knew nothing about consulting, which they would discover very shortly after I got into the club. But that's how I got started in the consulting side. And then I ended up getting down the road, getting rejected by Gates Foundation and Bridge Band Group because they didn't take uh, non-Americans. So I went to Bain as my third choice, to be honest. Anyway, that's a funny story about how I ended up not doing vaccine and ended up going to consulting. <laughs> Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. But Nick, how about you? Your story. So, well, everyone knows of you. <laughs> so anybody oh, in the know knows of you. I don't think many people know you, right? So where do you begin the story? Do you start a story from Harvard University? Is that how you start a story at university level? Or where do you, how do you start? No, actually, that, that's probably the wrong place for me to start the story. The, the, the right place to start the story is, is a few generations ago. Because I think what's so not often talked about, but is, is really fundamental to our, our values and our ambitions, and ambition's a good word, not a bad word, is the longer story arc of our families. And of course, when we think about families and business, we think about you know, the very large family businesses. But actually, on a logarithmic scale, every single one of us is part of a family journey, most of whom involve folks who were who were farmers or or fisher folk or other folks basically living off the land and the oceans just as recent as in some cases two or three or four generations ago my grandfather grew up in um, on my dad's side in a farming family in india and i emphasize that because that's really where the story begins through hard work through enormous self-discipline and a real focus on his part to getting an education well before uh, the British handed India back through the independence movement, he really trained himself to become a professional, an engineer, eventually became the CEO of a number of uh, factories of textile mills in India. That in turn gave my father the opportunity to, to get an education. He went to IIT and eventually came to America with just $400 in his pocket. In parallel on my mom's side, she had come from a slightly more affluent family, but not dramatically so. Her father was an entrepreneur who built a number of very special buildings and structures in Bombay, served as the Rotary governor for a region of India, and she became a physician, the very first certainly woman in her family 
to become a physician. And we ended up having a chance to move to America because way back in the 1970s, a couple of years before I was born, America was actually handing out green cards on arrival if you were a doctor. So the combination of my dad coming with $400 in his pocket and an IIT engineering degree and my mom having the opportunity to basically give our family permanent residency in America because of her medical degree made a whole new generation's journey possible. And they worked so incredibly hard in their lives to give us, our generation of my siblings and I, an opportunity to likewise to, to work hard ourselves, to get an education. And all those things, I think, really, none of them would have been possible had it not been for the extraordinary efforts of, of our four grandparents, multiple grandparents, uh, over the years. So the journey, like so many people on this call, really is a multi-generational story of, of working super, super hard, saving, focusing on education, and in many cases, trying to sort of think about what might be next, both geographically and in terms of profession. I had the enormously good fortune to have the opportunity to move to Singapore in the middle of my career. I was in my mid-30s. I had just about crossed the six or seven-year point at a global investment firm called General Atlantic, which has become a really wonderful and very large firm over the years. And they wanted to start a Singapore office. I came out over here, I co-founded it, and I ran it. And we built up a great team on the ground, began looking for companies, and then had the double good fortune to invest in a company that used to be called Garena back in 2013 and 14. And today has been renamed C. I was part of that decision as well. But again, I could never have predicted, Jeremy, any of these things 15, 20 years ago, let alone even 10 years ago. But through a wonderful set of happenstance, invested in the company because Forrest was my, my friend from school. We were business school classmates together. And then eventually, at his very kind invitation, accepted the opportunity to become the number two executive in the company, become the president, and then to have four amazing years hand in hand with Forrest and the rest of the team building which ultimately culminated with our launch of Shopee and the IPO of the business back in 2017. And then I did something that people thought was nuts. I retired. And I retired with a very specific mission not to, not to chill out. I took, I think, about a weekend off, maybe a week off, I can't remember. And uh, along with five other friends, formed a private equity firm, which was the intention all along. That's why I retired, to take the, the, the equity that I had earned and see over the years and to really redeploy it back in the next generation of up-and-coming startups in Southeast Asia. And that's been such a treat to be able to take, you know, a lot of the mistakes that I made at sea, the learnings I had, and to try to share those in an efficient and a helpful way with the next generation of founders that are building wonderful companies here in Southeast Asia. And that brings us to March 12th, 2021. Talking to you, Jeremy. Amazing. I love that story. I love that you begin with your family, right? I have a similar journey where if my grandfather on my father's side hadn't uh, decided to leave China, and uh, funny thing, his boat was supposed to go to Central America, but his boat was late. So he decided to saw a ship at a harbor that was going to uh, Malaya, and uh, he swapped his ticket because he didn't want to wait. And <laughs> that, his journey, and he founded some businesses as well, helped educate my father which would in turn help gave me an education to get where I am today. So I love what you said about family, Nick. I just want to say that. It's super, super important. I think the more we think about all the happenstance and all the incredible heavy lifting that's been done 
by our our elders and our previous generations. Number one, it reminds you every day to be humble. And number two, it really forces this wonderful ongoing glow of gratitude that we go through our lives with. And I think the more grateful we feel in a weird kind of way, the more we also want to help other people because you suddenly realize that, you know, really is such a joy to teach, to share, to give. And I know that sounds incredibly eat, pray, love and sort of, you know, motherhood and apple pie, but the reality is actually that is probably the only true sustainable source of happiness is trying to sort of be grateful and trying to help uh, other people along the way. That's so true. Nick, I'm just kind of curious. Did you, when I mean, growing up, did you hear any stories about your grandparents and how they were like entrepreneurial? Like any stories that you remember? Well, there's a really great one, actually. And by the way, I, I just see so many wonderful people that have joined us. JL's on this call, Heon, so many others. Hi, Kayla. Nice to see you on the call as well. A lot of folks from the community, and uh, we can be we can be efficient with everyone's time. If we run out of stuff to talk about, we'll let you get back to your Friday night evenings <laughs> and dinner. But I'll tell you a great story. My grandpa, my father's father, had literally no money. So typical of all of our grandparents or great-grandparents, all of us growing up here in Asia. But he had a determination to get an education. And back then, if you were in the textile industry, the single best way to learn the trade, because it was still a very North American business, was to go to Boston, of all places, Boston. And it turns out that actually Boston had a thriving textile industry, so thriving that actually there was a company called Berkshire Hathaway, which was a textile company, which probably was the worst investment Warren Buffett ever made. But he kept the name for nostalgia's sake and built his incredible empire on the basis of that brand name, but not necessarily that business. In fact, Berkshire Hathaway was a New England textile mill. But my grandfather had the notion that if he wanted to learn the business, he'd want to go get a degree in textile engineering. And the best way to do that was to go stateside and and learn from that. But he didn't have any cash. So what he did was fascinating. He convinced a mill owner in Bombay to basically pay for his transit in exchange for working and got himself a ticket to go there. And then in parallel, simultaneously got himself a job at one of the mills that could cover some of the tuition and expense while he was studying. And then to go one step further, this is just a great example of how entrepreneurs figure things out. At one point he said, you know, I can learn a lot in the classroom, but I really want to learn from how this business is run. So would you mind, and I think he might've even asked them to maybe just pay him a bit less, would you mind that after everyone's gone home, I can sit and I can read through all the board papers? I mean, if there's anything terribly sensitive, leave it out. But I just want to learn how you actually run this business and let me study it. And they gave him the opportunity to do that. So he literally went and kind of reverse engineered the textile business and then came home to Asia to go run those companies for the next 20, 30, 40 years of his life. And that was just so incredible because a lot of knowledge is actually out there. And if you're willing to subjugate your sense of title or your sense of current compensation or whatnot, just to learn it in a really practical way, then you can apply it for the rest of your life. And there's a lesson, I think, for myself and all of us in that really cool, almost educational growth hack that he discovered. Amazing. What was it like listening to those stories? How old were you? Were you like a teenager? Were you younger? Did you hear it from your grandparents or your parents? How was it like? I had the very good fortune to have my grandfather alive with us on my father's side well into my 30s, which was super fortunate. So I got to hear many of these stories for decades in different iterations and different flavors and different nuances. And with him, I went to the village that he was born in and grew up in. It's a very, very small village 
in central India called Arundel. And most people on this call have certainly not heard of it. India has probably a million such villages of any different shape and size. But uh, we went back and we saw where he grew up. And what you realize is such a sense of place and origin. But also what you realize is how difficult it is to break away from that and to create a new life through education, through savings, in some ways through entering the world that all of us here in this clubhouse chat take for complete granted, which is sort of a more meritocratic, skills-based world of, of service businesses as opposed to sort of toiling the land. So it's really cool to be able to go back and see where we all come from and, and to be all the more grateful for the opportunities we have to go somewhere else. Tell us more about that place. Was it like a sunny day? Was it raining? What do you smell like? Tell me more. The, the sad thing, Jeremy, about, about poverty on a global basis is how banal it is, how quotidian it is. It's a bit like the Russian author said, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. I feel it's the opposite when it comes to poverty. Every thriving, booming, economically resilient city is unique in its own ways. But when you see poverty, there are so many tragic similarities. And I think the thing that is, is the saddest of all is the sense of a decoupling between the amount of work you do and the outcomes that happen over time. You can imagine why different political persuasions are tempting for folks that live in environments like that, because they really do feel that frustration every single day going through the lack of opportunity. As beautiful as it is, there's also, to a certain extent, a sadness visiting parts of the world like that. And I think many in this call know what I'm talking about, having visited their own ancestral villages or, or hometowns or whatnot on the countryside, because you're simultaneously struck by how few, as a percentage of the kids that grow up there, have a chance to do something different than what their parents did. At the same time, you're suddenly struck by the fact that the process of being one of those few is, although definitely enabled and enhanced by hard work, it's so random and so luck-dependent that it can, be, it can be more than frustrating. It can be downright depressing. Now, I was inspired and just thrilled and grateful to have had a chance to go visit that place. But what I think it does reinforce for all of us, though, is that sense of purpose that sense of sort of mission, which is how do you create the greatest amount of opportunity, not just to earn a better living, but to actually become the individual you're born to become for as many people as possible? Because that opportunity is denied to a very large chunk of the roughly 8 billion of us on this planet. And it's something really worth figuring it out. Yeah, that's so true. That brought me to my ancestral village, I guess. And it's a Guzhen near the Zhongshan is in uh, Guangzhou, China. And uh -huh. it turns out to be now the lighting capital of the world. <laughs> you know, So all the lights, chandeliers are all manufactured there. And I too got a sense, I was like, whoa, my life would be so different if I was here versus my grandfather's crazy decision to leave, right? Why did he leave Jeremy? What was it that sort of struck him to say, gosh, let's try Singapore? <sighs> well, I think it was more of a push because at that time, he was born in the last few years of the Qing dynasty, right? Uh -huh. And then he saw like the fall of the, the monarchy. He saw the rise of the warlords. He saw this, the rise of the nationalists and then the civil war. So he grew up, I think as a kid, I didn't really understand this. But as I get older, I was like, and I watched these documentaries. I was like, you know, he grew up to a steady drumbeat of insecurity and war. And he said, 
in his late 20s, he basically said, well, I'm going to build a better life somewhere. <laughs> That's why he wanted to go to Central America. And he ended up changing his ticket, right? So I think it was very much a push rather than a pull, I would say. <laughs> and as evidenced by him just changing his ticket, right? Fascinating. Yeah, and I think to me, when I think about that story, it makes me very empathetic because today he'll be considered a refugee, right? <laughs> like, yeah, because he's leaving a politically and militarily insecure, security insecure area, right? So there's something that I do think about a lot. And I think a lot of people look at refugees, for example, and the first generation and say, yeah, you know, they're not educated or less educated than where they're arriving. Yeah, obviously, they, there's not much they can carry on their back. But as a, someone who's a third generation from his choice, I'm as assimilated or native as you can be, right? And I sometimes look at my friends who are thinking about these things and I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like we'll probably only know more than three generations out, right? <laughs> from being an immigrant, right? So, Well, it's know. so interesting that you say that because there's a saying that oftentimes family fortunes are also lost in three generations. So... It's interesting that it, when many people say we're all just three generations away from, from starting ground level, that's probably bi-directional <laughs> to a certain extent, which sort of basically says that there's a constant discipline involved in basically staying relevant and giving ourselves and our children the opportunities to really shine. But let me, let me, let me build on what you're sharing, Jeremy, because it's a super interesting conversation. I'm glad we're having this because all too often the conversations that seem to be happening in 2021 are about, oh, rah-rah, tech-tech. <laughs> and there's just so many other things worth thinking about than, than just those topics. A conversation that I love to have with people over dinner is to say the following. If you went back to the mid-1800s, you'd be shocked how many parts of the world still condoned slavery. And of course, wars were fought about this, like in America, the Civil War. If you went back to the turn of roughly the 20th century, 1900 or so, you'd be shocked how many people in the world still didn't have universal suffrage. Women couldn't vote. If you went back 50 or 60 years, you'd be shocked how many parts of the world still didn't have civil rights. And we look back at that and we say, shocks, those, that was so backwards. That was so wrong. And, and we were right about that. So my question is this, what is the great injustice in the world right now where, Jeremy, your grandkids will look back and say, Grandpa, this is shameful. Like, why, were, why did you guys let that happen? You know, why was it our generation's responsibility to fix that on behalf of you guys? So what would be your answer to that question? <laughs> so many, so many things. I think the one that I think is going to be is like immigration and the search to be in a better place. I mean, I think the impermeability, you know, or the and the the walls around borders is actually a really relatively new thing, right? I mean, like my parents, they were able to travel the world, you know, like the visas and all these other stuff. And I think, I think people were much more open to the free flow of people around the world, right, in search of a better life, right? And I think that thinking about in group and out group, it's a tough one. I don't know if it's actually, in fact, I would say like, I think in two, 200 years time, I think people would be, my kids would be, would be surprised by that. But I also wondered to myself if that might be a, an immutable thing, right? The building up of an insider versus an outsider at a border level. I don't know if it's going to go away. So to take the opposite tack, I think my children would be surprised by it, but it may still be true. It'd just be a new definition of insider versus outsider. 
That is so interesting. In fact, it's funny, Jeremy, you mentioned that. One of the most thoughtful responses I ever got to that question was from an academic, a very senior academic, who told me the existence of national borders, in his mind, is the greatest injustice in the world right now. Because why should it matter what country you happened to be born into in terms of deciding where you want to live, what opportunities you want to have. It's a fascinating question, and there's lots of political ramifications in all directions. But like you, he had a very similar answer, which is kind of fascinating that you both had the same choice. Neat. How about you, Nick? You've, you've asked this question a couple of times, so you've got, you've got a point of view <laughs> of this one, right? So i got to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I think there, if I had to pick one that I think about a lot these days, I think it's the, it's the still very, very inefficient meritocracy in the world, meaning people are not well matched with the opportunities that they'd be incredible at in terms of roles and jobs and responsibilities and whatnot. And that may seem like a very prosaic kind of work answer, but truly a huge part of what we do in our lives is our work. It's it's what we what we create in our lives in addition to our families. And in Harry Potter, you've got the sorting hat, right? So Jeremy walks in and well, Jeremy, you're definitely a Gryffindor, right? Yeah, you definitely don't strike me as a as a Slytherin. So <laughs> you're gonna get sorted. But there's no good sorting hat for humanity. It's not like LinkedIn's gonna tell you what you ought to do when you grow up. So I think actually the very poor matching of 7.8 billion humans to all the different myriad things we could be doing with our lives at different points in our lives is a great injustice because we ought to be smarter at that and put huge resources into optimizing that for for the planet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually totally agree with you. I think we look at education and we just say like, it's okay if not everybody has this education. And I'm just like, whoa, like there's so much human potential, right? And I have a four-month-old daughter who turned, uh, and I look at her and it's like, she could be anything. And and I'm lucky because, and she's lucky because she has parents who have won the educational lottery and are willing to do everything to fund her ability to climb the educational ladder and be matched to whatever job that she's going to be the best at, right? But this is an interesting conversation to have, Jeremy, because there's a terrific thinker out there, very sharp, named Peter Turchin, T-U-R-C-H-I. And I encourage everyone to go look this guy up. He's a sharp guy. He fancies himself the modern-day equivalent of a guy named Harry Seldon. Harry Seldon is a fictional character in Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. And some of you have read this from the 1960s and said it's one of the all-time great science fiction trilogies. Harry Seldon says, if you give me a ton of data, I can predict the future. And he predicts the fall of an empire that creates kind of the, if you will, the ante for the story. The reason I'm telling you this is that Peter Turchin, alive and well, a real flesh and blood human being, thinks he too can predict the future because he sees these patterns and how businesses rise and fall and countries and people. And what he says to this conversation we're having is that one of the single greatest sources of instability in societies actually stems from education. And it's not the lack of education. He says it's too much education. Now, before you think I'm going off my rocker and saying this, here's what he means very specifically. He's defined a term called elite overproduction. When too many people all have MBAs, but there aren't enough things for them to do with that MBA. Too many people all get law degrees, but there aren't enough things, and they all just start suing people. So I think what's super interesting about this, this challenge that we're dealing with, and by the way, technology can be very much part of the solution, is part of it's the education, but part of it is the offtake. 
what do you do with those people? How do you help them find meaning with the educational ladder they've climbed up? That, I think, is a still very unsolved problem. And the answer can't possibly be, they should all just watch Netflix, <laughs> as good as Netflix is. I think we've got to be a lot more sophisticated about matching those trained people with tasks and projects that are just really interesting. And I think we're really bad at that right now as, uh, as a species. Yeah, and that's really true. And you and I, we both won the educational lottery that way, right? 100%. So UC Berkeley, then Harvard MBA for myself, yourself, Harvard, and the Stanford MBA. So I'm just kind of curious, obviously, I have my point of view as well. But when you entered like Harvard and Stanford, you entered the Golden Gates, I guess. And do you sometimes struggle to ex explain your experience at that place with other people who never got a chance to think about it? So because I sometimes struggle with that. It's hard to explain what's inside rather than for those who have never seen the inside? You know, it's an interesting question, and I'll just give you the, the honest, brutal answer. I try to think about having gone there as little as possible, and I barely ever mention it to people for one simple reason. I just feel so fortunate to have gotten a good education, but I don't want those things in any way to define who I am, most of all in terms of my own self-definition, because that's the simple, slippery road to a sense of, elitism or even worse, resting on laurels. So I think if you have that sort of self-built, it's more than humility. It's a disregard for those things because they shouldn't be how you define yourself or get comfortable with the feeling that you've done something useful in your life. <laughs> so I got to tell you, I don't think much about them. <laughs> I have a t-shirt from one of those schools and I'm kind of embarrassed to wear it because I feel like it would be sort of like, I don't know what's the word for it, it would be sort of like uh, the wrong value set. <laughs> so for me, it's much less about that. It's just a sense of gratitude. Like, wow, I had some great teachers, made a bunch of great friends. But now it's time to do go off and do the real work that actually you know, counts a whole lot more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I struggled. And I also try not to think about it. Of course, it's, it's a useful signal for our, for our folks. Looking at resumes, talking about opinion leadership. I think sometimes I try to explain it as more like it's like getting a 5% increase to your interest rate, no matter what you do on, a, on your yearly bank account. Because once you get in, you know, it just keeps accreting, right? And it's not obvious in the short term, but it's invisibly working in the background all the time in terms of network, in terms of what I learned, in terms of the skills I gained along the way. It might, but I, I, I would also argue, and again, I'm, this may be controversial, for many folks that, that go to institutions that have some degree of sort of brand, it's also a negative 5% inhibitor. Because so many people exhaust so much energy <laughs> in the application process and whatnot, that to a certain extent, you know, they're like, oh, okay, great, done. <laughs> it's a little like that very cynical and kind of mean statement that, you know, the definition of a Rhodes Scholar is someone with a bright future behind them. And obviously that's super, super, super tongue-in-cheek and not in any way a reflection of reality. But the reality actually in this world is what matters so much more is not what your diploma says. It matters what the hell you do with it. And one of my favorite entrepreneurs loves to say that he went to the best university in the planet, which was the School of Hard Knocks. I couldn't agree more. If someone can like get me like a football jersey for the School of Hard Knocks, I would totally wear that every day. Well, that sounds like a merchandising opportunity very soon. <laughs> oh, man. I'll totally make one and like, you know, whatever. Discipline. Would love it. Would love it. So let's talk about work, right? So uh, School of Hard Knocks and your first School of Hard Knocks was, I assume, McKinsey. That was your first time entering and doing a job, right? <laughs> what was that like? 
Well, McKinsey's a super interesting place because it, as much as is possible in a fairly practical world of business, it tries to actually figure things out on first principles. And it's not the only shop. I mean, Bain is wonderful and BCG is wonderful and so many other firms. But it, for what it is individually, it is really good at trying to sort of ask questions and, and sort of try to build things up in building blocks to come up with a reason for why things are happening. I just loved it. It was a really great place. You make a bunch of great friends. My wife is also from McKinsey. My office mate introduced me to my to my wife. So you end up becoming part of a, just a bunch of fun people to be with. I think there's a lot of similarities to almost thinking of it as a kind of a master's program that you get to go to kind of right out of college. And then the other thing that I think you learn a lot about is as you're puzzling things out and trying to sort of work out the solution to something, as intellectual as that may seem and not very practical, you also learn a lot about the deep linkage between how you write things and how you think things. And that may seem kind of academic, but actually it's very important. The quality of thinking generally improves if you're a better writer, and the quality of writing generally improves if you're a better thinker. And no one shows up to work being very good at either of those two things. So you end up getting a lot of practice, almost like a medical resident, in figuring things out. And I just, I'm very grateful for all the training and frankly, all of the tough love that you get in a place like that. And interestingly enough, it ends up giving you, I wouldn't say a versatility, but it gives you sort of a curiosity about how other things work. That's actually really, really fun. The, the best McKinsey people or the best consultants in general are actually special, not because of what they happen to have learned and memorized, but because of their kind of very sharply defined curiosity for figuring the next thing out. A great skill, I think, to have because you ought to be able to walk into any dinner party and be utterly fascinated by the person sitting to your left and to the to your right, and that's a wonderful gift to be able to have. And consulting firms do a great job of teaching that. Well, uh, that's funny because my wife is also McKinsey. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! That's brilliant. Well, the joke is more like I joined Bain. I looked at my partners and I said, who left their poor wives at home and their husbands at home, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that to my plus one. And then, of course, years later, my wife, and I left Bain, and then years later, my wife was like, oh, I want to join McKinsey. And then I realized I was going to be the one left at home. There you go. I there know. you go. You, I think you can write her a slide deck about it. <laughs> yeah. Nick, I was kind of curious, like, what, what feedback did you get at McKinsey? Did you, I'm just like, because, you know, at consulting firms, they, they give a lot of feedback, right? Like, this is what you got to work on. So, like, what feedback did they give you, Nick, in your, in your first year? Do you remember? Oh, man, it's been so long. I probably buried it all subconsciously. (laughs) (laughs) Not really sure. Let me think for a second. Gosh, it's been so long, Jeremy. I think it's some of the usual stuff. In a funny kind of way, maybe I can wrap into a broader theme and something that I've learned and I really encourage folks at our firm to sort of adapt and think about. There's an inherent shyness that people often have when they're starting in a new organization. We all know the drill. You sort of show up to work. You kind of don't want to sound stupid. You don't want to feel like you're you're talking much when sort of it's the senior partner's job to do the talking. And frankly, you even if you don't want to sound, sound stupid, you don't have a whole lot to say once you're just figuring things out at the very beginning. And what I learned over a lot more years post that point was the following. Number one, there is enormous value. So and you can see we're going this part of the feedback I got was, you know, please try to speak up a little bit more and sort of don't be as shy. And I've obviously broken through some of that shell as the years have gone by. But here's the interesting takeaway. I have come to, to sort of maybe have this view 
for right or for wrong, that there's a lot of stuff that people can learn autodidactically in life that most people don't bother doing. Let me give an example. Let's say hypothetically you're on a McKinsey project or a BCG project or, a Bay or whatever. You're at a startup, you're doing something, and you've been asked to go think about some new area. Let's just say it's e-wallets. Let's pick an area that's on everybody's minds these days, fintech and e-wallets. It turns out there's like six awesome books on Amazon about how Visa was built, how PayPal was built, how parts of China's payments ecosystem were built, how it fits into e-commerce, how regulation works. And if you really worked at it, you could read them all cover to cover and ingest them properly over probably three weekends. And you would not spend even the fraction of what it costs to get a Gerson Lerman, one of these expert networks, to have one of their experts talk to you for an hour. You would literally spend about $87 on Kindle expense, and you'd walk out really knowing a lot. But no one does that, <laughs> which is fascinating. And interestingly, what I sort of came to learn over the years is that a lot of my shyness in early meetings when I was younger was to a certain extent, maybe it's because I have a science background, I felt I didn't know anything worth saying. But if you do a lot of the work to read stuff, and then once you've read stuff, you can talk to some more people and ask them maybe one or two interesting questions, and they start to open up to you because you asked them a question that they thought was kind of interesting and kind of triggered a few more thoughts, all of which cascades into actually having much more interesting conversations with people. And it's not that you want to sort of become some sort of Jeopardy contestant and know what team won the World Cup in 1973. It's less that. It's more like, wow, what was happening right now seems to be very similar to some of the challenges that Visa was going through. And I'd love to ask you if there's a similarity, whatever, 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 and kind of making this up on the fly. But you start to see the patterns of things a little bit more. And even more than that, you just start to find it all very interesting. So, if there's something I learned at McKinsey, indirectly, it's that the best way to actually be more engaged in a conversation, in a meeting or whatever, is to actually do a lot of legwork behind the scenes. It reminds me, Jeremy, of this great Mark Twain quote. He used to say, a really great extemporaneous speech requires about 24 hours of preparation. <laughs> That's obviously sort of a little bit of a kind of an oxymoron, but it's true. And oftentimes, like Steve Jobs would say, you discover only late in life how the dots connect, but it behooves all of us to put a whole bunch of dots into our lives, often through reading and then, you know, sort of learning about what's already transpired. Yeah. Wow. I think that's so true. You just got to do the, the work and you're just always going to revert to the mean or become a politician in terms of like finding common ground. But it's hard to be spiky and have a clear point of view if you haven't done the work beforehand, for sure. Nick, I think obviously you went on to build this career in New York. You started out in the States and then you made a move to do your first ASEAN investment. So tell us more, how did, you, how did Southeast Asia enter the picture for you in your orbit? Well, it all began in a very unusual way. I first came to Singapore to work, not even as a tourist, in 2006. And it's a part of my story that I actually, I don't think that many people know. I came here to work at Lenovo, of all things. And the reason was very straightforward. One of my bosses at General Atlantic, who is an extraordinarily interesting and fascinating and very, very thoughtful business person, his name is Bill Grabe, had been one of the top people at IBM literally top five globally for IBM. So much so that Sam Palmisano, who 
ultimately ran IBM after the famous Louis Gerstner, Sam Palmisano, I think, was a guy that Bill had hired or at least had trained along the way. So this is just really special. He came to General Atlantic in roughly 1993, and amongst many, many things he did by the early 2000s, he had this great idea that we would help Lenovo buy the very, very famous IBM PC business. Now, many will know that back in the early days of computing, there were a few different brands, Commodore, Amiga, of course, the old Apple IIs and whatnot. And then out of this now legendary and famous story, out of their Florida R&D center, IBM built a PC. And this wasn't IBM's kind of knitting. IBM was sort of in the mainframe and the big iron business, OS 360 and the big stuff. But a bunch of guys kind of put together, guys and gals put together the first PC, the IBM PC XT on the 8088 processor. And of course, that spawned, along with Microsoft, the whole PC revolution. Fast forward to 2003, 2004, that business was sort of maturing. Dell and others had sort of made a lot of hay. And it actually made all the sense in the world to do this wonderful East meets West merger, which, of course, could never happen in the current geopolitical climate. And as a part of that, General Atlantic invested $100 million to help Lenovo buy this business. And, and my boss, Bill, joined the board. I was at business school at the time, just after that, and my return offer to General Atlantic was conditional on spending the summer at, with GA, ideally in a company. And I want to emphasize that for one quick second. A bunch of folks in this call probably have a background in different aspects of venture capital or investing. One of the really things, really fun things that we've done at Asia Partners, it's, it's central to our culture, is that no one can get to the vice president level at our firm unless they have simultaneously done some investing work and have worked for at least two years in a line role in an operating company, like a C or a Gojek or a Grab or what what have you. And end around, there's a workaround to that. If you go get an MBA, then you just have to work for one year in an operating company. But we'd actually prefer you just do the two years and not even get the MBA if need be. But where am I going with this? Bill's view and GA's view was, yep, yeah, in the same way, you're getting your MBA, but go work in a real company. Go go learn how businesses get run and managed. And they said, why don't we send you to Singapore? We've just bought the Lenovo IBM sort of combined business. Go out and help. So I got my first introduction to Singapore in a long-winded answer to your question by running around the Funan IT Mall <laughs> back in 2006, trying to figure out how we would sell people consumer PCs, because we didn't have any in Southeast Asia. We had a nice little office in Lorong Chuan, which many of you in Singapore will know, and I just fell in love with Singapore and all things Southeast Asia. Unbeknownst to me, my wife also loved Singapore. That's a whole other story. And when the opportunity arose in 2011... To go set up the office, it was an absolute dream come true. We we left it. I remember, you know, coming home to sort of ask her, "Hey, but GA wants us to move to Singapore. What do you think?" And I'm sort of taking some creative liberty here, but the the, the summation of her answer was, "You numbskull! Why didn't you just accept on the spot? Why did you have to ask me for permission? Let's go <laughs> and let's move to Singapore." And that, of course, was in 2011. And I think it's a fun conversation, Jeremy. If you'd like to take the conversation in that direction, which is to talk about how much has changed since 2011. Because we talk a lot about how Southeast Asia is having a moment right now. And we, we talk about this golden age concept, but it didn't happen overnight. I mean, Southeast Asia has been working very, very hard to get to this point, thanks to your efforts and many in this call, so that here in 2021, about 10 years after I moved here, you know, things are starting to really finally take off. 
Yeah, I'd love to go into that because I remember that and I moved back to Singapore about 2011 as well, so 2012. And I remember the first co-working space opened up, uh, it was called Impact Hub Singapore <laughs> by Grey Side 2012, I remember. And then Golden Gate and Jungle Ventures was running around that co-working space with me. So, but things have changed a lot. Nick, compare and contrast, like what was it like then when you first moved for real with your wife versus today? Yeah. Maybe I've been talking too much, Jeremy. I'd love to hear from you and others on, on the call. Maybe we can all just go around and ask folks from the audience to talk for literally give us in a single sentence. Maybe we can ask four or five people. What's the single biggest difference in the tech ecosystem 2011 to 2021 in Southeast Asia? If they could say it in a single sentence, maybe we can just ask folks to raise their hand. And do you want to kick us off, Jeremy? Do you want to kick us off with an answer? Yeah. In your mind, single biggest difference over 10 years. Yeah, and everybody feel free to raise your hands and we're able to rotate you in. I'd say the biggest difference is that the word founder exists. <laughs> you know, like the word, the concept, the career, the the mind share that the founder has. I mean, in 2012, we didn't even call ourselves founders because we were like, that's a weird thing to call ourselves. We need to call ourselves like president or CEO. I remember all our friends were like, we, we don't call ourselves founders. Nobody would take us seriously. <laughs> Nobody would fund us if we call ourselves found, founders. And to some extent, that's changed dramatically over time where people think it's great. People think it's awesome. People think it's an acceptable job. I remember my mom being very disappointed in me when I told her, I was like, oh, I'm setting up a business. And my mom was very disappointed because, you know, you know, she thought I was a consultant and she didn't really know what consultant was. I told her it was being a doctor to companies. And so that made it acceptable. But I couldn't find an analogy for being a founder at that time. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And look, there's a great book by Richard Feynman, which is a quote that his, at the time, his wife had shared with him. What do you care what other people think? And, and to that, to a certain extent, is worth of some conversation with the group. Because I would say, that at least here in Asia, we think a lot about what other people think, especially our parents. And it's fine to think that way about ethics and morality and values. But in terms of like pursuing a path of creating beauty in this universe, why should you care what other people think? A great question to think about. But let's ask some other people to, to, to say, what's the single biggest difference over the last 10 years? Yeah, Melvin, you go ahead. And then Oliver and JSP. Hey, guys. Thanks for a really awesome chat. I enjoyed every minute of it. Did you say 10 years or 20 years? Because I heard 2011 versus... Oh, wait a moment. It is 10 years. Oh, my God. I wanted to answer this question because... Of hey, Melvin, and... Melvin, by yeah. the way, we have an amazing ed tech company that focuses on math. If you ever want a discount code, no, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding you. Fire away, my I really wanted to answer this question because I was thinking about this uh, very recently, and I'd say the biggest difference is the unicorn expectation. In 2011, I just founded my first startup, and we exited to Ruckus in 2013. And back in those days, like that small little teeny weeny exit was like really celebrated with family and friends. But today, if you're not doing a unicorn exit, you're like, uh, don't bother. Super interesting. Thank you, Melvin. Oliver, you want to go next? Hey, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Jeremy, for bringing me up. I think for me, the biggest difference is just the explosion of product and engineering teams uh, based out of here in Singapore. And I think the reason that really, really matters is not only does it build a culture wherein people are just like experimenting and, and launching stuff, not just for the country, but for the region as well. 
great example is how like new products like Google Pay for India and now in the US are partly built out of Singapore in addition to products that also creates like a cool pipeline of like founders, right? Because eventually everyone will either start a startup or work in a startup. And, and I think it's, it's a big major change. Uh, I was first in Singapore in 04 or 08. My first job was here and I was working in marketing analytics. And one of the biggest problems we always had was like uh, building all of our data pipelines and just build really cool software. And, and now I think that's, that's less of a problem. And I think it's, it's, been, a, it's been a great change, a great shift. Uh, looking forward to see how that exponentially scales in the next five years. Super interesting. How about JSP? Thanks, Nick and uh, Jeremy, for having me up on stage. For most of you who actually have never met me in person, you might remember me from Tech in Asia in 2019 in Jakarta. I was the guy that uh, won Nick's T-shirt for having been to the most cities across Southeast Asia. Of course. And, How have you been? Oliver says oh, hi, by the way. Oliver yes. says hi. <laughs> yes. I, I said of a congratulatory note um, the other day for your, your raise. Congratulations as well. Very kind. And I think... I think the the biggest difference in the last 10 years, it's possible and people are talking about it. I remember being in Bangkok in 2012 and people were saying to me, like, what are you doing out there? Like, everything is going to be in Silicon Valley or it's going to come out of China or India. There's just nothing going to be there. And you fast forward 10 years and now we've talked about how many unicorns and where are they going to go public and when's the next one coming up? So I think to me, the biggest difference is, like you said before, there's rhinos out there and uh, we're excited about uh, seeing the next one come through. I think I've been muted by a moderator. <laughs> so maybe that's my cue that I'm talking too much. No. Um, Valerie, should you go next? Hi, Jeremy. And thanks, uh, Jeremy and Nick, for bringing me up. I have two differences that I want to share. The first one is the amount of uh, venture capitalists in Vietnam uh, currently that's where I'm from and based in currently. I talked to a few industry veterans and the time that I was in college, there was only one Vietnam fund, uh, venture capital fund. But now we have at least four to five VC focusing on Vietnam, which and, and have location headquarters in Vietnam. And I can think of if every single VC fund in Southeast Asia has Vietnamese uh, associate or Vietnamese representative, which brought me opportunity to join VC industry as well. And the first company in my portfolio just made the first Vietnamese startup to be accepted to Y Combinator. So very exciting. And then the second biggest difference is uh, now coming back to Vietnam to work is not considered like a loser anymore because I, I was bringing up that idea and none of my friends really consider it as a career options, they always think, you know, Silicon Valley or US is a better path. But now a lot of people asking me like, hey, should I come back to home country now? I really want to explore opportunities in Vietnam or South Asia. And my family start to look at me going back to Vietnam, not as bad as before. So yeah, I want to share those two things. Thank you. Super insightful. Thank you, Valerie. Come on. Maybe, uh, Jeremy, should we give Rajiv a check-in and then we can all maybe broaden the conversation? Yep, sounds good. Uh, so Rajiv and then... Appreciate it. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, thanks, Nick. Hello again. Sorry, son, today at school. 
<laughs> is your is your child at Little Hands also? Same same one. Same oh, one. I'm so sorry. It was raining a lot. I might have had the umbrella and didn't see you. Sorry about that. that. All good. All good. So I think the one big change, and it's sort of piggybacking a little bit of on Oliver's point, but slightly different, is a good hallmark or inflection point of any ecosystem is is the ability to export your tech to other parts in the world. And I'd say in the last ten years. We sort of moved away from not only being building tech that is for self-consumption, but we're starting to see quite a substantial pro- proliferation of tech being built that's being exported into other parts of the world and competing and in, in, in winning. And so as, as we sort of grow and mature, I think that that's one trend that we're keenly looking at and one we're happy to see is, uh, as part of a, a maturing ecosystem. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, we've only got two minutes left. I'd love to pose a question to the group, and, and Jeremy, maybe you can start by responding, or others can as well. It's one final question, which is which is the following: markets go up and markets go down, and based on our sort of feeling about these things, and based on the data, there tends to be a big tech bubble roughly every twenty years. If you think about it, nineteen sixty nine was a very very big tech sort of bubble. There was obviously a, a massive tech bubble maybe 15 years. There was a massive tech bubble in 83, 84. There was a massive one in 1999. This one seems to be happening in 2020, 21. How would a 70% crash in the NASDAQ, which is already down about 20% from its absolute peak, it's only for Tesla, how would that change people's determination, grit, resilience towards building tech companies? I'm super interested in this question because actually... Sometimes the world's best companies get created during times of recession because it's the entrepreneurs that are truly the ones that are the most passionate, the most committed to building great companies that stick it out and see it through. And others maybe think that other career paths might be a little bit of a better way to spend their time. So just curious, Jeremy, to get your reaction in the last minute we have. Yeah, I think the data shows that great companies have been built regardless of time, right? You know, it doesn't matter what time it is. It is a great company there. I think the interesting part is, I think, the whole ecosystem around it, right? I think it's more about the unthinking optimism slash unthinking pessimism (laughs) that tends to follow these cyclical components, right? And that can be a downer, obviously, in terms of fundraising. It can be a downer in terms of like community and personal support by friends and family. So I think that would be the biggest change, I think. And it's not bad thing because we're also going to see you know was it the stories like when low tide comes you figure out who's been swimming without their shorts on so i think that's not necessarily a bad thing as well because for the good faith builders they're going to persevere in good times and bad right so that's how i think about it interesting fascinating well this has been a lot of fun i've got to go take my kids for a walk (laughs) (laughs) nice to see all of you guys here thank you for sharing your time with me i learned a lot from what the group shared And I just wish you all a a very healthy and a very happy 2021. Thank you so much, Nick, for spending your time. Thanks, Jeremy. Bye.